Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we are back with number 43 on AFI's top 100 list. That is 1969's Midnight Cowboy. Midnight Cowboy. How are we at number 43? What a what a, a path we have taken. And it's weird, too, because I'm also getting older as it's happening, and I didn't agree to any of this. Right. I mean, listen, we're, we'll be dead by the time this is done. It's a little dark, but yeah, perhaps. <laughs> if not of old age, of the uh, state of the world. <laughs> right. Well, Ethan, speaking of getting older, we have a returner to the list here in this ah, film. Yes. Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman, who uh, I really enjoy, um, and you know he's become in the last oh year and a half, maybe two years, somewhat of a problematic figure uh, because he too has been accused of sexual assault as a young man, um, and and didn't really handle his accusation very uh, gracefully, um, but it didn't really seem to stop him uh you know uh, lots of people have been accused uh of, of sexual assault or have admitted to sexual assault and uh dustin hoffman uh seems to have escaped unscathed uh perhaps for good or ill this might be a larger conversation we have at some point but do you think there's just certain untouchable celebrities that of a certain quality we just ignore things like that you know, I wonder if that is is what has happened here. That Dustin Hoffman is to so many people such a uh, you know critical, important, you know, massive figure, um, and and has been at least in his work. You know, we we looked at Tootsie, um, and we've looked at uh, we or we will continue to look forward to some of his other stuff, um, and. You know, again, not not without his sort of problematic nature, but, uh, you know, he he seems to have I, I think you're right. I think he seems to have uh, perhaps remained unscathed because of his monstrous public image, not monstrous in in uh, prodigious, prodigious. Right. Uh, his his sort of large and storied career. Like if Tom Hanks was accused tomorrow. I'm not sure what changes. Well, right. I mean, I think that, you know, I think there are some of these figures that, you know, uh, it just becomes hard for people to make sense of it all. Right. And it's probably based on some of the roles they've played um, and their own public persona. Um, Again, you know, for good or ill, probably for ill. I'm glad we got that out of the way up top. I think it's always important that we acknowledge that. But I think we are also overdue for a plot synopsis. I think we are, um, and and this is a good one. Um, so Midnight Cowboy is the story of Joe Buck. He's a young Texan veteran who leaves his small town to pursue a career in sex work in New York City. He's troubled by his past, and he finds little success in his initial attempts at sex work, though his endeavor does ultimately culminate in an encounter with what turns out to be a call girl, and Joe finds himself having to pay her for their time together in a quote-unquote fun turn of events. Um, Shortly after he meets con man Rico 
Ratso Rizzo, who attempts to set him up with what Joe thinks will be, uh, I guess I was a little unclear if this man's going to be his pimp or an, another uh, client, um, but he soon discovers that this man is a religious fanatic, um, and this encounter triggers memories um, from Joe's past, causing him to flee the man's apartment. Uh, Joe then searches for Ratso in anger, but is unable to find him, and shortly after this encounter, he discovers he's been locked out of his rented room because he does not have the money to cover rent. Joe uh, begins to turn to homosexual sex work, and after allowing a young man to perform oral sex on him, discovers that his patron has no cash. Joe allows the young man to leave after roughing him up and finally comes across Ratso serendipitously, who brings Joe to live with him, squatting in his apartment in a condemned building. Ratso agrees to be Joe's pimp, though his poor health steadily declines. In flashbacks, it becomes clear that Joe's grandmother, who raised him, was pretty possibly also a sex worker, and while he's away in the army, she dies unbeknownst to him. Joe's past relationship with a mentally unstable girl is also revealed, along with severe trauma that implies that she and Joe were raped by a gang of men. Ratso reveals that his father was a shoe shiner who died poor and in ill health due to his exposure, his long exposure, to shoe polish fumes. Ratso desperately wants more than what his father had and dreams of moving to Miami, uh, represented in the film by long, elaborate fantasies of him and Joe catering to older women at a resort of some sort. Joe and Ratso uh, find little success in their partnership, and while they commiserate at a diner, a strange couple approaches them and invites them to a Warhol-esque party. At the party, Joe accidentally smokes a joint, thinking it's a cigarette, and becomes extremely high. It's happened to us all. Ratso steals a large amount of food and drink at the party, and Joe finds himself a rich female client, or at least affluent. As they leave, Ratso's health becomes so poor that he can no longer stand and he falls down the stairs. He insists that he's alright and Joe leaves with his client. When they have attempt to have sex, Joe finds that he cannot perform and the women or the woman, that is, asks if it is because he's gay. She taunts him. Her goading pushes Joe to perform and they have pretty violent sex. The next morning she sets him up with her friend. Uh, for later in the week, and when Joe returns to Ratso, he finds him gravely ill. Ratso refuses to see a doctor and insists that the two must leave town to head to Florida. Joe meets a male client who he subsequently robs and maybe murders, and uh, using the money puts himself and Ratso on a bus to Florida. Ratso's condition worsens, and once they arrive in Florida, Joe sheds the trappings of his old life, uh, namely his clothes. After dressing Ratso on the bus, Joe realizes that his friend has died. The bus driver tells him there's nothing to do but wait until they reach Miami, and the film ends as Joe holds Ratso's body while the bus continues onward. That ending, huh? Uh, man, you know, the ending of this film was... Uh, pretty hard to watch uh you know and and as someone who's experienced a death uh recently this year um in my family man dustin hoffman's performance is chilling like chillingly good 
it, it's 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 a rough ending. Yeah, and it's also a critical ending because I think I hated Joe Buck really until like the last 15 minutes of the movie, and I didn't really feel sympathy for him until that last moment. Yeah, I, I think that the film does set up our, our main characters as uh, fairly ambivalent characters, right? Like, it, for me, it was unclear as to whether, for a lot of the film, as to whether Joe was just deluded or or stupid or um you know just sort of wrapped up in his own i don't know selfishness perhaps or his own sort of false dreams uh but when we really see him on that bus um you know trying so hard to get ratso to florida and rat you know ratso insists insists that he you know he cannot see a doctor and florida will you know be his saving grace and and you know we see Joe really give up uh, the beginnings of his you know possibly lucrative career as a sex worker um, to help Ratso and man, God he tries so hard and and just isn't able to save this man. So I'm glad you mentioned the ambivalence of our characters because our pivotal scene for today is actually one such scene about halfway through the film, about an hour in. Where they're in Rico's apartment, and I am going to insist upon Rico because he Rico, dies. Right, we Rico, should call Rizzle. Rico. You're right. And they are using some language that I, I don't want to repeat, but they are. It's a slur for homosexual. I'm. Yeah. It's going to be in the the clip, so trigger warning if that's offensive to you. But I think this is really important because it shows how Joe is deluded. Yeah. And how he is unsure about his own identity. Yeah. And how Rico himself is experiencing a lot of perhaps projection with Joe in this moment. So I think this is a really complex scene if you can get past the harshness of the language. But yeah. let's go ahead and take it a listen if you are willing to do so. Here we go. Kind of good. Miami Beach, that's where you could score. Anybody can score there, even you. In New York, no rich lady with any class at all buys that cowboy crap anymore. They're laughing at you on the street. Ain't nobody laughing at me on the street. Turn your back, I seen them laughing at you, fella. Oh, what the hell do you know about women anyway? When's the last time you scored, boy? That's a matter, I only talk about a confession. We're not talking about me now. Well, when's the last time you've been to confession? It's between me and my confessor. And I'll tell you another thing. Frankly, you're beginning to smell. And for a stud in New York, that's a handicap. Well, don't talk to me about clean. I ain't never seen you change your underwear once the whole time I've been here in New York. And that's pretty peculiar behavior. I don't have to do that kind of thing in public. I ain't got no need to expose myself. No, I bet you don't. I bet you ain't never even been laid. How about that? And you're gonna tell me what appeals women. I know enough to know that that great big dumb cowboy crap of yours don't appeal to nobody except every Jackie on 42nd Street. That's faggot stuff. You wanna call it by its name, that's strictly for fags. Uh, John Wayne, you wanna tell me he's a fag?
I like the way I look. It makes me feel good. It does. And women like me, goddammit. Hell, the only one thing I've ever been good for is loving. Women go crazy for me. That's a really true fact. Right so hell, crazy any they had to send her away. Then how come you ain't scored once the whole time you've been in New York? Because I need management, goddammit. Because you stole $20 off of me. And that's why you're going to stop crapping around about Florida. And, and get your skinny butt moving. Earn $20 worth of management, which you owe me. So, I mean, that's certainly a term that was being used at the time. Right, we have to remember this film is 1969, so, uh, you know, uh, the the language, you know, the, these are things that we don't really say anymore. Um, although, what, what, what I find really interesting is that even if you go back 10 years in film, um, you, you see terms like that, and maybe even less, um, you still see terms like that thrown around, um, you know, for comedic effect or for, I don't know, uh, emphasis or whatever. And, and it, it just really, I think is indicative of how we have, uh, really pivoted in terms of gender sexuality issues in just the last decade. Yeah. And I think to add on to that, this scene is also showing a bit of conflicted identity and, Mm -hmm not gender fluidity but it is a not exactly hyper masculine ideology that joe finds himself in yeah the, the the sort of sexual politics of of this film are are so interesting for something that was made in 1969 you know and 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 as per usual in our uh exploration of the list this is based off of or it's an adaptation of a novel which i believe is from 67 and i think it's just really interesting what joe is willing to do in order to chase his dreams even though he Mm -hmm. is deluded he wants to be a hustler by his own terminology which actually took me a little while to figure out what that meant he wants to be a male prostitute a (laughs) high-end i guess a gigolo if that term is still in play at all yeah but the fact that he is married to this idea of being a cowboy because it's supposed to say something about his identity and his past, his his life in Texas, and how Rico is saying, look, that's not the identity that's being assigned to you. Again, we're like super neutering the language here, but he's saying that's not the language that's assigned to you here. And then we start having Joe lash out at Rico, and we start to see some depth to these characters because they are starting to reveal a little bit of the vulnerability beneath and throughout the movie. And I think if we didn't have these scenes throughout the movie, we would think that Rico would be the main character because it's Dustin Hoffman. And I think he outshines John Voight as Joe Buck in this film. Oh yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. But we have those traumatic flashbacks of Joe Buck where you mentioned at the top of the plot synopsis that he's a veteran, but we really don't know that until most of the way through the film. Yeah. I think you're right. I think he was raped. Him and is it Annie that they Yeah, were? Annie, I believe. They call they they call her crazy Annie. And it's also implied perhaps that maybe the rape and then she's completely distraught and almost incomprehensible when the cops come. Yeah. And she says, You're the one, Joe, you're he's the only one. Right. And that gets yeah. twisted. I think that's why he joins the military, right? Because back then you could do that to escape 
criminal charges really right you could disappear uh in a way that you just simply can't anymore and and yeah and i and i did a little bit of reading and i believe the novel makes it a little clearer that uh annie is someone who i i think i i don't know that she's necessarily a sex worker but i think that she's someone who just due to her whatever condition she suffers from um does have a lot of sex she seems entirely promiscuous yeah and and i think that that you know so in these flashbacks again it's it's unclear but it's possible that you know she may have been someone who slept with a lot of people and you know clings to whoever's there and perhaps her you know condition is worsened by this rape which again we only see in weird dreamlike flashes so like art house kind of moments yeah and 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 so i was unsure too if the film was maybe pushing us towards um the idea that joe's memories of it of maybe his rape are invented and maybe you know maybe that involves his conception of their relationship or his discovery uh, of her promiscuity um or or what right and and I think you do point out or you did point out earlier that like this thing where she says while they're sleeping together that you know she keeps saying over and over you're the only one and then perhaps like you said he's implicated in in her rape and her uh you know uh her being sent away it's very un it's very unclear but it definitely shows this uh, traumatic incident that involves the two of them and on some level and i think the multiple reimaginings of the situation at first you have very abstract things where they're being chased by these men through like sand dunes and stuff yeah like on a beach or something conformed reality but then it becomes more and more focused on a night they're in the car and then you see them get dragged out of the car and it's clear that both of them are being sexually assaulted. Yeah. And I think this is the nature of trauma that it's returning to Joe. Like you mentioned when he's in O'Daniel's apartment, which I think O'Daniel is being positioned by Rico as a pimp. And it becomes clear that he is a Catholic reformer trying to reform wayward sex workers. Yeah. And I think that so much of this film is about like memory uh it's about you know conceptions of identity um it's about sort of uh misconstrued understandings or or perhaps you know just straight falsehoods right like so much of this is about like how how do we remember the past how do we imagine the present and and how do we uh, you know imagine and conceptualize the future right like how how do we deceive ourselves um and how do we not right which is also what we see in Rico's apartment where he is talking to Joe when he first brings him there about how good he has it and how nice a situation you're living in and they're in a condemned building that yeah. is horrid living conditions but this is kind of the stories we tell ourselves but yeah. Layered underneath that are all these traumas, ordinary or exemplary, as in the case of Joe. He's got these exemplary traumas. Yeah. And 
he starts to become more human throughout the film once we see more of these. And again, I think we both touched on this. We really never get a full rendering of the moment. We are led to mistrust these memories a lot of ways, which I think is critical to why this film, I think, becomes so high on this list is it's doing something in a way that is really stepping outside of the typical viewer relationship to a film. We're supposed to see a flashback, understand it as fact, but we're told to question that even though they're sort of circling around the same issues, we get the gist of what's going on, but the exact nature is never really explicated. And I think that's important because that's how trauma works. Right. And I think that coupled with that final moment of Rico's death, I think I really came to like this film. And quite honestly, throughout my first like hour and a half of this film, I was not on board. Like I did not enjoy this film until the end really. And then retroactively I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I think I had kind of a similar reaction, uh, although because watching this film, you know, I, all I came in knowing was that it was uh, initially an X rated film. Um, and so I wasn't sure quite what to expect. And going into it, you know, I, I had a lot of distaste for the world that it shows. I mean, because it, it shows us a very unpleasant, uncomfortable, dark, you know, seedy uh, world. And it's populated with characters that that you're. I don't think at first you're in any way meant to identify with, like, care about. But the more we learn about them and the more that we learn about how they conceive the world, conceive of the world, um, we endear ourselves a little bit to them or at least to their desires um you know their dreams uh and i will say that even though this film initially i had a bit of distaste for um i was pretty enthralled in a way that uh a lot of other films on this list have have not been able to do this was the kind of film that uh you know if i got a text message or something i was like i can't miss anything i gotta pause this sucker you know um, and a lot of times in some of our other films, I'm, you know, willing to, you know, glance away or respond. You know what I mean? Uh, this is a film that I could not look away from. Yeah. And I think the arresting nature of this film is that it is so bleak in a lot of ways. It is people taking advantage and being taken advantage of yeah. it is these multiple layered traumas that are enacted and reenacted. Yes. Because Joe is a victim and also a perpetrator. It seems pretty clear that he murders that man in that hotel room, the conflicted, closeted man who wants to have sex with Joe, but also wants to be some kind of Christian. I I didn't know what his denomination was, but it was pretty clear that he was trying to do this for religious reasons. Well, and also I thought that that man too had, uh, perhaps he had some sort of sexual thing about being shamed and about being, even to a point, uh, physically harmed. And and that whole scene of violence, right, like his teeth fall out because he has dentures. And like, I think that, that he as a character becomes an embodiment of this sort of hollow identity, this hollow presentation that we give. They're in a hotel room that's not his real room. You know, the the more uh, Joe either gets close to him or beats on him, the more he like fall, literally falls apart. Um, 
and I think by that point, I, I was I was really understanding what this film is trying to tell us, right? That like your identity is this, you know, false front, this cardboard construction, um, you know, that like with just a little bit of scrutiny or a few punches from <laughs> from Joe, you know, uh, uh, dissolves. And then we're supposed to understand Joe shedding the hollywood glitzy cowboy style as him sort of weathering the veneer but that is so optimistic that the movie has to bring us back down to reality with rico's death and so we can imagine that joe is going to be forced to stay in miami he really has no choice that was all of their money and whatever life he ekes out there you know previously he worked as a dishwasher and in new york he sees a sign for dishwasher wanted, but instead he chooses to continue the hustle. I think now we're going to find a Joe that is humbled by the world, but also better able to exist in it because he doesn't have these delusions about being a wealthy JLO in this lifestyle that's untenable and its own cycle of trauma. And I also think too, that, that the ending gives us this, um, at least for me, it gave me a a sense of the fact that like Joe's past is going to actually catch up with him now. Right. Like he's run out of moves to make, right. Uh, people have died and we can, like you said, I think it's pretty, um, clear that the film wants us to at least entertain the fact that Joe murdered that dude. Um, and you can't, in 1969, you can run, but this is not a Bonnie and Clyde situation. And even Bonnie and Clyde, it doesn't end up well for them, right? Like, it's coming. You know, the 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 bad shit's really fucking coming now. You know, there are there are dead people. Well, that's interesting, Reed, because I would actually take an opposite view of the ending and say that there are thousands upon thousands of these people that fall through the cracks, both the killers and the killed. Mm-hmm. And I think this is just one more sedimentary layer of victims and perpetrators that joe becomes enmeshed in yeah and i think this is just the film pointing out to us in addition to the ways in which delusions are dangerous the ways in which they can lead to violence and they can lead to tragedy i think it's also saying that this is every day like this is indifferent and there's nothing exceptional about this and the fact that we end the film on a in a bus on a bus yeah. with Rico dead and Joe, if not broken, fairly close to being broken. Mm-hmm. I think it's just saying like you see this all the time. This is no different. This doesn't yeah. have to end in a hail of bullets. Well, and I and I think too, you know, I think you're right in that way, right? That this film does show us the people that fall through the cracks, and we do get to see this sort of like seedy underbelly of of the world i mean we think of new york as the you know the city of dreams right the city of possibilities you know the bastion of of self-made men and so much uh you know art and literature works to sort of expose that 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 is not true i mean this this film is in a sense a film about the uh you know the destruction or the deconstruction of the American dream, right? Like that there is, unless you have the means and you're born into it, there is no American dream for you, you know? 
uh, and it happens all around us. It happens on the bus, you know, um, and, and Rico gets such a, um, you know, such a, what's the word I want? Maybe not ignanimous, but he get. I mean, he gets this small, inconsequential death, right? He, he doesn't, he doesn't die in a hospital. He doesn't die with friends and family around, you know, he doesn't die having accomplished something. He, he dies on the bus chasing a dream, you know, uh, broken and, and, uh, you know, maybe even useless to, to an extent. I mean, that I think is kind of a, a, a harsh way to explain it, but you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's important that he gets no final words, right? Joe asks him the question and there's no response. And that's right. The it, question right? remains Very unanswered. Sudden. Yeah. Well, Ethan, I think we need to turn to our three questions. Yeah, I think we should. So what do we owe this film? Um, well, without a doubt, we owe this film the wonderful trope of, Hey, I'm walking here! You know? Yeah. Uh, which, you know, is not inconsequential, right? This has become such a, uh, you know, shorthand for the New Yorker, right? And and the New York experience, uh, and even perhaps the urban experience, right? Like just living in a city, you know, you have to become the, the kind of person that, you know, shouts at a cab driver and, and even when you're maybe in the wrong, uh, walking out into the street, right? Um, we also, I think, owe to this film a, 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 another instantiation of, or, or at least another sort of twist on the buddy comedy, right? Because this is a buddy film at the end of the day, right? Like it's two guys that cling to each other and, and uh, have, for lack of a better term, adventures. I mean, or perhaps misadventures, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think that this is another film, you know, that we have to think about that, this idea of the buddies, you know, the buddy comedy or the buddy drama or, or some version of that. I think also, though the film came out the same year, I'm reminded a lot of Easy Rider. Mm-hmm. The fact that they are trying to attain something that doesn't seem attainable given their station in life. Yeah. And that they are always running to while simultaneously running away. Mm-hmm. And I think this is speaking toward a larger moment at this time because... In Easy Rider, they're trying to go to New Orleans to go to Mardi Gras mm-hmm. or New Orleans, as humans say it. <laughs> and our protagonists in this film are trying to go to Miami. And this is not a westward movement. No. Right? This is eastward. Joe Buck in Texas, we call that the West or whatever. Yeah. He goes east. Yeah. And I think this is an inversion of what an American dream was at one time. Yeah. Either going west to America or going west within America to the frontier yeah. to claim your dreams, people are going back east. And I think that's important. I think the inversion of that is important. Yeah, because geography. We get these ideas of these failed dreams or these aberrant or uncanny dreams, right? That that, that there yeah. is something misplaced, misguided, misinformed, or malformed about them. And yeah. I think 
films like this really make that clear. And I think if we broadened our search, we could probably find a lot more evidence to substantiate this as well. Yeah, I also think that this film uh, happens in a in a cultural moment where where at least two things are happening, right? We see right around this period, at least just based on the list, right? We have all of these deconstructions of the cowboy narrative. And very obviously, this film is making uh, a comment on, you know, the cowboy, you know, the masculinity uh, that that surrounds it and, and is part of it. Um, and we also get this film moving towards uh, violence and making, uh, you know, sort of violence and sex um, as as art, right? As, as acceptable art, because this film, you know, won, won many awards. Um, it's the only X rated film. It's no longer X rated. It's R rated now because there really isn't an X rating anymore, but, uh, it's, it's the only X rated film, uh, to, to do so well in the Academy Awards. Um, we can also look to other films right in the same time period, such as, uh, I'll, I'll give us a little shout out to our Patreon films. Uh, we look at Night of the Living Dead, which is either, uh, I believe it's a year before 68, which is another one of these like for the time shockingly violent and shockingly uh, sort of obscene films. So we get this move towards violence and sex and we also get the and I, and I think that that move is is parallel in a lot of ways to the deconstruction of the cowboy, the cowboy as a uh, figure of you know, valiance or whatever, right? Um, you know, it's they even name drop John Wayne, um, who won the Academy Award that year for I think Best Actor, um, and did not much care for this film. Um, so you know, we move away from this sort of valorization of the cowboy and of the you know the the rugged American man to you know this sort of dark and sordid, violent, uh, anti-hero at best, right? Uh, sort of character and we have as you mentioned butch casting and sundance kid same year wild yep. bunch same year yep and it is interesting to note in this film we do see a photo of paul newman dressed as a cowboy which i have to assume is butch cassidy butch cassidy yeah 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 so these four films that we've noted on the list being a part of this inversion of the american dream or the shattering of the icons of some way Right. And, and, and of course, at this cultural moment, too, we're moving away from I mean, we're, we're, we're at the very tail end of the uh, sort of, I don't know, uh, shining, happy, you know, 50s understanding of America and the man. Right. Um, we're in Vietnam now. Yeah, we're in Vietnam and we are moving into the sort of dark and sordid antiheroes of the 70s. You know, yeah. so I I think we could both agree on the next question. So we might save ourselves some time and just kind of answer it together. Do we care about this film? Yes. Yeah. So let's go to our third question. Does it hold up? <laughs> um, and and in this case, I I think yes. I think that this film, remarkably, just on a visual level and the way that it is, um, both filmed and cut, right? The cinematography and the editing feels aggressively modern um the way these flashbacks work uh and and the way that sound works with these flashbacks i mean this film feels 
way ahead of its time. Um, it, it feels like an art house film from from this decade, you know? Absolutely. And I think you mentioned that wild Florida fantasy earlier yeah. in your plot synopsis. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the shining moment of this because this is Rico's greatest fantasy to make the Florida. And it's still tempered by the fact that they're not surrounded by beautiful young women they're surrounded by old women they're still old women clientele and rico is shouting out the bingo numbers but right. it's so well shot and well done and the colors are amazing and it really just shows that people really knew how to work cameras really knew how to edit film and you're right i i feel like this is very modern yeah it it, it it's remarkably modern um you know in 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 it's in even down to the storytelling right the way that it um, you know, gives us pieces of flashbacks and uh, and makes them clearer and clearer as we go on, the progression of the story. I mean, it, it just is wonderfully shot. And when you when you know that this film w- was made on a shoestring budget, it, it's kind of amazing what they can do because we, you know, there, there are certainly many uh, modern films with giant budgets that can't get anywhere near the sort of aesthetic triumph that this film is it's it's hard to undersell and i think we'll just stop underselling it then and maybe wrap our episode up this week we are going to be back on afi in two weeks and the movie will return with ethan you mentioned it earlier in the episode 1967 bonnie and clyde bonnie and clyde is our next film really yep Ah, we are in for a treat. And you know what? I think that we will find uh, in our discussion of Bonnie and Clyde that this is yet another film that feeds into this sort of uh, thesis that we're loosely constructing about the uh, breakdown of the American dream, the move towards violence, the move towards antiheroes, the move away from John Wayne-esque characters who know right and wrong um there's such an interesting moment that that this list uh sort of lays out for us well it's been told to me many times that 1968 is the most important year in american history modern american history and i think the list is sort of corroborating that with the films that are clustered or constellated around it I think so. And, and, you know, on top of it, I mean, these films that we've been discussing, I mean, on the whole are pretty damn good films. And I mean, we've definitely watched a few on this list that I think we both kind of agreed were not of the highest quality, maybe not to our tastes, uh, you know, not our favorite films. Um, But we're, but, but uh, some of these films in this little period here, uh, are just outstanding. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde is, of course, one of my uh, favorite films. Um, and I think that you will probably find your, things to like in it, if not uh, enjoying the film overall. And then we will eagerly wait for that then. But until next time, I've been Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Hey, I'm spoiling here! I'm spoiling here! Asshole. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. 
Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.